Section 1 of G. K. Chesterton in the Bibliophile Magazine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Larry Wilson. G. K. Chesterton in the Bibliophile Magazine by G. K. Chesterton. W. E. Henley, Poet the changes that pass over great societies are often too big to be seen that is they are too big to be summarized under a public name but it is a gross mistake to suppose that each of them is not felt as a private fact every man feels the faith or the sin but every man feels it as something peculiar to himself it is the most secret part of every separate man that makes up a real social movement the general philosophy is drawn not from what everybody says but rather from what everybody does not say but feels the more public opinion is made up of all the most peculiarly private opinions hence we always find a paradox in the fashion of speech and thought the changes which men in any age are always talking about are never the changes that are really going on the changes that are really going on are not those which men pompously applaud when they get together but those which they vigorously promote when they get by themselves for instance england was turned from an agricultural to a commercial country while people were talking publicly about things quite different chiefly about whether charles first head ought to have been cut off lord john manor and his young england company when they tried to revive agricultural england were like that other nobleman lord tomnoddy and his young england company who woke up after the man had been hanged but because the change came privately do not suppose that it came unconsciously on the contrary it was quite specially conscious because it was quite specially private every man was publicly interested in charles i's head but every man was privately interested in making money at any cost and the mad factory chimneys we see rising everywhere and the monstrous cities in which we walk have been created not by their public speeches but by their private thoughts now in the whole literature in the later nineteenth century there was an analogous process a process which every man felt inside himself and which was yet not much mentioned in the many open debates about art the change i think was this that every literary man began consciously to consider himself as a character in a play he exaggerated his own oddities because he had to conflict with other and opposite oddities he was the black spot in the picture someone else was the white in all the most striking writers of our own time one can feel this picturesque and partisan quality this quality which assumes the existence of dialogue and of different figures one can feel it for instance in mr rudyard kipling and mr bernard shaw one can feel the floodlights at their feet nothing could be more different from this than the old especially the medieval conception of the function of a man the medievals believed that one man should have in his head the balance of the whole universe a smaller cosmos but still a cosmos the medievals thought that a man should have inside his skull a little sun and a little moon and yet littler stars all drawn justly and to scale every man should have the equipoise of everything there must be no conscious pitting of red against green according to the medievals every man as far as his intellect went 
must be perfect even as his father in heaven was perfect the last of the medievals in england was herbert spencer the modern literary method that of exaggerating one's own peculiarities as if one were playing in a farce gave the world a number of arresting and exciting personalities its great defect however was this that it tended to give many men quite false personalities i mean that even great men sometimes took so totally wrong a view of themselves that much of their work was wasted they preferred their own masks to their own faces they painted themselves so fiercely for the floodlights that they concealed their own original good looks it is only these men who had real reputations to spoil and spoiled them who are of any interest in literary history we need not concern ourselves with mere imbeciles and impostors we are not troubled about mere asses in a lion's skin the only interesting cases are just those two or three cases of one lion dressing up in the skin of another one of these curious cases is that of the late w e henley he was a man who really suffered from the histrionic habit which has grown gradually on men of letters he was a man of large heart who deliberately narrowed his heart he was a man of large brain who deliberately narrowed his brain he was a man thoroughly by nature a poet who forced himself against all his own emotional trend to be a boisterous and topical ballad monger the critics of the future will have to take a great deal of trouble to extricate the real henley from under the heavy accretions of the fictitious or dramatic henley but they will take the trouble for they will be digging up gold no critic will ever be accused of misrepresenting henley the only man who misrepresented henley was henley himself if we read those poems in which henley was striking a deep note as distinct from those in which he was thumping a tin kettle we shall not find it at all difficult without having ever known him to say what kind of man he was he was a sad sensitive and tender-hearted pessimist who endured pain that came from nowhere and enjoyed pleasure that came from nowhere with the exquisite appreciation of some timid child in maeterlinck's plays he was not so much a stoic as a tragic epicurean but he had this truly sublime quality in the highest type of epicurean that he enjoyed a pleasure so much that it reconciled him even to pain he certainly believed in his soul that the rule of the universe was bad but his glory was that he was ready to accept the rule for the sake of the exceptions he enjoyed a red rose so poignantly and perfectly that he was ready to go through thorns for it even though it was only an accident of the tree and not its crown his poetry rose to its noblest height when he spoke of the strange joy of having snatched some good from an evil world this led him to dwell much upon the past and to him memory was a kind of intoxication neither he nor any one else ever wrote anything much better or more real in its own way than those lines about things already secured what is to come we know not but we know that what has been was good was good to show better to hide the best of all to bear we are the masters of the days that were we have lived we have loved we have suffered even so shall we not take the ebb who had the flow life was our friend now if it be our foe dear though it spoil and break us need we care what is to come that is the true henley 
and as i have said it is not very difficult to understand him he was what every poet must be who shares the unbelief of our age a man melancholy though not without happiness a man reconciled to a second best a poet who has lost his gods must always be like a lover who has lost his love and has married a sensible woman for the earth which henley enjoyed has never been the original starting point of men's thoughts or labors heaven was man's first love and the earth is only a substitute even when it is not only a marriage of convenience unfortunately in his lifetime and especially in his later years henley hid himself behind the mask of what he thought he ought to stand for somebody told him or he somehow got into his head that he was the representative of rude energy and militant empire his talents were entirely in the other direction so far from specializing in strength he describes in most penetrating poems a condition of beautiful weakness so far from being by nature a prophet of the british empire he had not the temperament to be a prophet of his own town or street he did not believe in them enough he did not believe much in anything there were some things it is true which he definitely disbelieved in he certainly had a sincere hatred for democracy and for christian morals but positive beliefs involve a certain simple fixity of the intellect which was not at all a part of his personality he did not really believe even in the stone of the street or the stars in the sky but he had this strange quality of a great imagination about him that he could enjoy things even without believing in them this quite false conception of himself as a raw head and bloody bones produced a crop of poems which are not in henley's good manner or even in his bad manner they are not in henley's manner at all it would be untrue to say that henley was ever a hypocrite but some of his poems are hypocritical the song of the sword is i am afraid hypocritical it is all about the lord and the sword two things that henley knew nothing whatever about of the sword he had no grasp or experience and in the lord he didn't believe the heavy old testament manner of the whole thing was utterly alien to his true nature which was sensitive and modern exquisitely attuned to pleasure and to pain he was not a solemn youth like david he was an epicurean invalid a man more unmilitary cannot be conceived if he had ever held a sword in his hand he would have been filled either with pain at having to inflict wounds or with pleasure in inflicting them both these emotions are feminine and unsoldierly and the most painful evidence of all his unfitness for such topics can be found in this that when he was attempting to be specially masculine he always came near to that most unmasculine of all ideas cruelty but it is not with the false henley but the true henley that the world will deal he caused his own exquisite voice to be drowned in the clamor of his own quite fictitious reputation as a sort of political ruffian he drowned his own voice with his own drum but anyone who cares to-day to take up one of his books of poems will suddenly find himself in an atmosphere utterly unexpected and very calm he will break into a sudden stillness he will read a few quiet poems about grey streets and silver sunsets he will find that the poet has a peculiar power of describing the voiceless and neglected corners of a great city the little grass grown squares 
the little streets that lead nowhere the poet feels the loss of parts of london as more lost than the lost parts of the wilderness and he loves them more he has an almost eerie power of realizing certain aimless emotions of an empty afternoon all will seem full of a kind of quiet irrelevance and yet the very foundations of the reader's heart will be moved the sadness will only seem an expression of the sacred value of things and as he walks home at evening after reading such a book every paving stone and lamp-post will be pathetic because it is precious nay the world will seem brittle because it is precious and if it might be broken by accident end of section one